Hi, friends, and welcome to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. I am Nathan Coleman Lamb, and I am joined by both my friends and co-hosts today, Johanna Mellis. Hi, Johanna. Hi, how are you? I am great. Uh, and Derek Silva. Derek, how are you? Hey, great. I'm awesome. Great to be with you guys. Yes, indeed. Uh, especially because uh, we have an episode here that I'm thrilled to share with listeners. We won't talk for too long, but um, before I kind of get into the episode, I want to, because it's related, in fact, to the episode, I want to plug for everyone another piece that the three of us wrote. Um, I believe it'll have it'll have come out about a week ago as of when this recording is released. Uh, it was a piece we wrote for The Guardian about uh, the experiences that college football players have been having on campus this summer based on conversations we had with um, some anonymous sources sharing with us really the harm that they've experienced this summer, the themes that we've been covering uh, in the show generally, but uh, it was really painful and powerful to hear what they had to say. Uh, so we tried to connect that to some of the more public happenings that have been in fact unfolding at an absolutely blistering pace in the last week. Um, so please, I encourage you to check out that piece because I think that it is actually really revealing about what, what these folks are going through. And it that is the lens we have to examine all of these sort of structural questions through, right? Like the structure produces the harm, but we have to understand what that harm looks like in practice, how it is lived by athletes. We have to put that personal face on it to really get the magnitude of what's being done. Um, so please do check that piece out. And it connects to the show today because we had the pleasure of talking to Rich Ricky Volante uh, of the Professional Collegiate League, and he does an absolutely masterful job, in my estimation, of laying out for you today what that league is and how it is a competitor for the NCAA. Uh, I've heard a lot about the PCL before. We even had Andy Schwartz talking about the PCL, but to be honest, there were a lot of unanswered questions for me, things I was still a bit unclear about. And I gotta tell you right now, having just recorded this episode with Ricky, I know exactly what the PCL league is about. Yeah, so if yeah. you have exactly if you have any interest at all in this league, uh, please do take a listen today. And then in the back half, we get into the harm that has been happening this summer in college sport because Ricky has um, a lot of intelligence of his own that he's been gathering. So he shares that and kind of connects it to the questions around the PCL. So to me, this is um, a really fine show, and I hope folks listen all the way through. Yeah, and if you are listening to our episodes and you like what we're doing, please um, get in touch with us. You can do that through Instagram on Twitter. Our handle is at endofsportpod. You can also email us at theendofsport at gmail.com. And we also have this brand spanking new website that Derek very thoughtfully created for us. Um, the address is www.theendofsport.com. And if you go to the website, you can scroll over um, to sort of the center right part of the page and click on support us. And you can, that will link us, link you to our Patreon account, which we would really, really appreciate some support so that we can uh, boost the quality of our episodes, make sure they're accessible for everybody. I know we would really like um, to be able to create t-shirts that say cancel football, um, if only <laughs> to sort of catch people's eyes and have maybe some potentially awkward conversations. Um, but please let us know what you're liking about the show so that we know what we can continue to do better for you. But seriously, cancel football. <laughs> Enjoy the show. Ricky Volante is a co-founder of the Professional Collegiate League and serves as the chief executive officer overseeing the day-to-day -day operations of the league while focusing on business and operational growth and the benefits created for athletes. 
He is also an attorney at the Volante Law Firm, LLC, and an adjunct professor at the Harvard Extension School and Case Western Reserve University School of Law. He also co-hosts the Forward Thinking podcast with PCL Chief Operating Officer, David West. Ricky, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's a, it's a real pleasure to have you here. There is so much for us to get into. The timing could not be better. Um, so I'm excited. It's almost hard for me to go through our kind of traditional questions here. But I'm going to ask you the same thing we ask everyone, which is, how are you coping right now with the pandemic, with the uprisings, with everything that we're all faced with uh, in Cleveland, Ohio? Yeah, it's been, it's been as good as I suppose it could be, good being a relative term. Uh, my entire family, we've all stayed healthy throughout this, stayed isolated for the most part, limited travel and things, taken it seriously since March. And, uh, you know, as a result, we've been fortunate here in Cleveland, the during the Black Lives Matter movement, I know this was one of the cities that went on lockdown for a little while. Uh, interestingly, my wife and I had actually just left the city that morning totally unrelated. And so we were not here during uh, what ended up being a, a lockdown for, for several days here downtown. But uh, so otherwise, though, other than being at home and not traveling, we've been, we've been fortunate. I'm very glad to hear that. Um, so listen, there's two key lines of questioning we really want to get into today. Uh, the first is going to be the PCL itself, because we really want you to break down for us uh, everything that we need to know for people who are unfamiliar with the league, and also just sort of some of the insider stuff about what goes in to the, an incredible project like this, an incredibly innovative project. Um, so uh, we're going to start with that, and then we're going to shift in the second half to this incredible moment of exploitation and resistance we're all watching play out in college sports right now. Uh, and, and I think that we, we all have a lot to share on that front, uh, a lot of behind the scenes stuff that we've all been hearing about. Uh, and I think that probably listeners will be uh, really interested to sort of hear a discussion of that material. But let's start with the PCL. So can you first take us through the genesis of the league itself? When and why did you formulate the idea? Who was involved? And how was it initially conceived? Absolutely. Y'all are familiar with the other original co-founder, Andy Schwartz, an economist out of the Bay Area, who's been the economic case manager for the plaintiffs in O'Bannon and the Alston cases in the Ninth Circuit. With the actual genesis of it, where we've passed about five, five years and three months or so when I was still a law student, had Andy come and speak at my law school and in the course of our getting to know each other and our conversations, we also wrote a note together uh, for the Marquette Sports Law Review. He presented this, uh, I could, don't even think you can call it a business proposal. It was like five or six pages, and it was sort of this theoretical document of what if the HBCUs broke away from the NCAA, formed their own league, and started paying college athletes. And that was really the, the original basis of, of the PCL, formerly known as the Historical Basketball League. From there, it took me a couple of years to sort of just get my get into the practice of law, kind of get my feet under me just in my personal life. And so we actually this week have passed the, the three-year mark where I've been full-time with the league. And basically, so the genesis of it as I mentioned, Andy had gone through the litigation process in two of the most you know, landmark cases. At the time, it had only been O'Bannon uh, and the White case in the mid-2000s against the NCAA. 
And so litigation wasn't really bearing the fruit that he'd hoped it would. And, you know, he was also one of the state citizen co-sponsors of SB 206 and even back then had been legislatively trying to push forward a solution for college sports. He was also in the behind the scenes at Northwestern with their attempt to unionize and uh, organize the, the football team on campus. And so, you know, as breaking down economists speak, he tells me there's four ways to break down an economic cartel, and that's unionization, litigation, legislation, or competition. And so the other three ways hadn't really worked. And so we decided that even though it would take a long time and it would take a lot of effort and would require the raising of a lot of money, that we felt competition was in the long run the best play to take down the collegiate sports model as we currently know it. So could you give us a little bit more background into like sort of the mission of the PCL as a, as a whole, as it, as it stands today? Yeah, I mean, really what it's about is, is empowering athletes and restoring their complete economic and civil rights. As we all know, for a collegiate athlete, you give up a slate of rights at the door just by virtue of being a college athlete on campus that non-athletes do not have to give up. And so we felt that combining this social impact empowerment movement along with what we think is a very viable business opportunity would create a double bottom line you know, opportunity for investors to not only feel good about what they were doing, but to also um, make money while they're doing it because nobody invests in things uh, for, for nothing unless it's a charity and that we are not. So, you know, we th- felt combining these things and starting with men's basketball, going back to sort of the genesis of it, we felt like that was the right place to start because you can fit our entire league. We're going to have eight teams with 12 players per team. So 96 players in the first season, you can fit that in one and, you know, one, not NFL, but one college football team. So, you know, the costs associated with getting a basketball league up and running are substantially less than football and most other sports. But at the same time, as we know, basketball is certainly a high revenue sport. So we felt like it was the right place to compete to start. Plus, there's the component of, of with college football, there's a lot of pomp and circumstance that goes into the environment, the stadium, the locker rooms that would be really hard to replicate that don't really exist with basketball. So again, we felt like it was the right entry point. And so to what extent has the concept for the PCL changed since its inception? And you, so you gave us a little bit of description um, just now, but we'd like to hear a little bit more about, well, obviously, when is it going to begin and, and what is it going to look like? Uh, what will the experience of the PCL be for the athletes who participate? Yeah, so over the course of the last three plus years now, We've added Keith Sparks, who was a former associate athletic director at Stanford, joined our our ranks and was our third co-founder. Then David West joined us as our COO and our fourth co-founder. Most recently, we added Wendell Haskins as our chief marketing officer. And the five of us, over the course of those three plus years, you know, this has been very malleable. As I mentioned, we started off thinking let's convince the HBCUs to break away from the NCAA, form their own league. And then, you know, the 
the HBL at the time, now PCL, would have been a, a third party providing the salaries while the institutions provided scholarships to the athletes. That is nothing like what our model looks like now. Uh, you know, we we went down that path. We tried to convince the HBCUs to break away. Ultimately, they did not feel that the the risk was worth it. And you know, we especially got some resistance at the conference level uh, for some of the 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 four primary HBCU conferences. Um, and as a result of that, we decided, you know, again, in the long run, because we were going to have to have these licensing situations with each school, and then that would introduce potentially some of the same conflicts that exist within college sports, we needed to create an entirely separate model where it would function a lot like the HBCU West program, where Google employs certain HBCU CS students throughout the course of the summer, pays them very well. And then during the school year, they're on campus at these HBCUs. Uh, getting their CS degrees. And so for us, it, it functions very similarly where we are the employer of all of these athletes, uh, the, the PCL is. We will have eight independently operated teams um, in terms of there, there's no affiliation with an institution or anything like that. These teams will be comprised of students that are college students that are at accredited institutions and they will have the opportunity to attend any school in the city that they play. And then additionally, their scholarship is covered by our affiliated foundation. And I think you also asked in there, when will we start? We are aiming to start uh, just a little less than a year from now, June of 2021. Excellent. Thank you. So there's one point that you mentioned that I'd love for you to love to follow up with you on is that you mentioned that um, that the HBCUs felt that the risks were too great. So could you sort of like walk us through from their perspective what those risks were? Yeah, I mean, the again, going back to the original thesis of of Andes, which was the uh, when you're looking to compete with an economic cartel, the best bet is to find who is most hard done by that cartel. And in this case, it's the HBCUs. You know, the Division One HBCUs get about nine hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year distributions from the NCAA, whereas you know a Big Ten school, for instance, gets between fifty to fifty-five million. It's really hard for a Division One HBCU to ever break away or or jump, you know, the, the up the ladder, so to speak, in terms of being competitive with these institutions. You know, I remember. I believe it was FAMU played Ohio State a couple of years ago and lost like, you know, 77 to nothing or something like that in football. Um, and there were multiple FAMU players that were injured during the game. You know, those sorts of games have become known as blood games. Um, and that, I mean, that's just reality for for HBCUs in football and for the most part in basketball as well. I mean, in, in Division One basketball, the last three tournaments, only two HBCUs have qualified for the field of 68. And in each of those instances, they played each other in one of the two play-in games. So by the time you get to the field of 64, you only have one left. So it's almost impossible to break out of this, this economic system that they're now trapped within. So we wanted to convince them that it would be worthwhile to, to start their own league, allow us to provide the salaries, them to provide the educational opportunities and go from there. Um, but very quickly, even at those institutions, there was a great deal of resistance to the idea of college athletes being compensated. There was one institution in particular that we got to the point of presenting the agreement in front of them. We had their signing bonus ready to go. 
And the special assistant to the president looked at me and said, is there any way we can do this without paying the players? <sighs> and it was at that point that I kind of lost it. This wow. was like six months in the work. Um, you know, we, we spent a lot of time with that institution answering a lot of questions from all the different stakeholders on campus, from the board to academic deans, to the athletic director, to the president in his office. And, you know, it came down to that, that they still felt it was so critical that the athletes not be compensated. So that was an issue, number one. And number two, they felt as though the NCAA and the institutions, member institutions would take retributive action in a couple of different ways. Number one, they felt that they would just get straight out punishments from the NCAA for their other teams on campus by permitting a paid basketball team to be on campus. Number two, institution, public institutions in some of these Southern states, you know, like in North Carolina, where if all of a sudden North Carolina Central is getting the best players out of the Raleigh Triangle area, not Duke in North Carolina, there was legitimate concern that potentially legislative funding uh, would be messed with, uh, state funding, I should say, and that legislative action would be taken to potentially retard some of that state funding. I don't, I can't speak to how realistic any of those concerns were, but that's what we were hearing from these schools. Um, and, you know, there was a lot of disorganization in those, on some of those campuses as well. We had multiple examples where we would have a meeting set up, we'd get on campus. And one of the very first questions we get is who are you and why are you here? Yeah. I, wow. So th there's so much here. And I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you sort of breaking down that kind of detail because that's the stuff I think that gets lost sometimes when, you know, someone's like, you know, we got this new league, it's a competitor for the NCAA, but you don't realize what goes into that. And it's the behind the, behind the scenes stuff reveals a lot about how this entire college sports system works. Like one of the things I'm hearing in, in what you've shared with us is like you, you were paying the players. You weren't asking these institutions to pay the players, right? Correct. Yet the objection that we hear is like, can we get away with this without paying the players? Which to me is like, it, it's a complete echo of the NIL rhetoric, right? Which again, the institutions aren't paying the players when it comes to NIL. Like as far as I'm concerned, NIL is an incredibly sweet deal for the NCAA institutions, right? They get someone else to pay the players and then they can wipe their hands clean and say, not exploitation. You know what I mean? Right. Like that, that whole conversation's wiped away. So you're doing the same thing here, right? Like who's going to complain? You're paying the players. They get to fulfill their educational mandate. It's all good. So, I mean, I, I guess the kind of question I have is like, why the hell are they so invested in amateurism? Quote unquote amateurism. <laughs> it's crazy. I mean, because again, I, I, maybe going into more detail than you want on the learning experiences that we had, but you know, so we got that initial feedback about retributive action would be taken. So we said, okay. We'll take a look. We'll see if there's a way that we can minimize the risk and the exposure that the institutions have. So Andy and I did a deep dive into the NCAA, NAIA, and NJCAA uh, rules and regulations. And what we found was, okay, you may or may not be correct. I still think that there would have been a legitimate lawsuit to be had against the NCAA if they had done such a thing. That said, they do not have regulatory power or authority over club sports. So we said, okay, instead of your varsity program withdrawing from the NCAA and risking any sort of, because some conferences require men's basketball to be involved in that conference. So instead of you jeopardizing your, your conference affiliation and your NCAA association membership, 
Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to come onto your campus. We're going to start a club team. It's going to be housed out of student life. We will pay them. It just so happens that your club team is going to be better than your varsity team. And again, the, even that, where now the schools would have had the opportunity to get paid by the NCAA, maintain those payments, and then also get payments from us, the amateurism piece of it was still the objection of, well, wait a minute, you're going to be paying these players, so aren't people going to start like terrorizing them basically on campus? Like, aren't they going to start targeting them and and wanting to rob them? Like, again, these are legitimate things that were brought up to us of we're now going to have to provide security to your players while they're on our campus as students because they're going to be wealthy individuals. And again, it was just they were looking for any reason in the book to try to not let us have this team on campus. So it was frustrating. We could easily write a book about it as to why they want uh, amateurism to continue to exist and that facade to continue to, to exist. You know, there's never been a monopoly that just handed power back. You know, that never happens. Um, they, they, they hold on to it for all that it's worth and, and they ride it, you know, into the ground basically until you end up with the Clayton Antitrust Act and the Sherman Antitrust Act, where you have to have these major legislative efforts to break trust or to break monopolies up. One of the things that, that I'm hearing here is the pushback at any attempt to um, untether uh, education and from athletic labor to like there there's just that that preconceived notion or the the very intentful notion that like education has to, in, in this context has to be tethered to athletic labor but what one of the the goals of the PCL I'm hearing is to completely detach those from one another and create a model where it's education and compensation. So one of the questions as someone involved in higher education myself, and um, so is Nathan and Johanna, and you as well, um, is can you speak a little bit to the place of education within the PCL mission? Yeah, it's, it's near and dear to us. I mean, we really believe that you know, the numbers are out there in terms of 2% of athletes make it professional from the collegiate ranks. Granted, if we're successful at recruiting from the upper echelon of talent, that number is going to be very different for us since we are only going to have 96 players in the first, the first couple of years that were in existence. But that said, we firmly believe, and, and this is part of why David West was our target for our COO position. You know, he went to Xavier, he graduated before going to the NBA and playing 15 more years in the NBA. We firmly believe that that educational component ultimately makes for better people and more well-rounded athletes. Now, we're not, now I'm not going to sit here and say that means they need to get a four-year degree because I think that's kind of BS personally. And that's part of why in our model, they're eligible to go to accredited four-year, two-year trade educational programs, online schools, and community colleges. We're not going to force a square peg into a round hole. I mean, I think that there's huge issues with the educational system in the U.S., higher educational system in the U.S. across the board. So what we want to try to do with each individual athlete is figure out where they're at, align them with the appropriate school and program where they will be able to benefit the most from it, 
And then, you know, hopefully through that system, we're going to produce not only really great athletes, but really great people that are well-educated and engaged with the academic opportunities that they have. So that's everybody that's involved from our standpoint, we are very adamant that this academic piece is, is critical to the long-term success of the league because more than one, on one occasion, we've had potential investors approach us and say, hey, just abandon this, this academic piece. You know, let's just, let's just pay some players and let's make this happen. And that's, that ultimately has never sat well with any of us and not something that we've been willing to consider. So you've mentioned the role of investors. Um, and so I'd really like to hear a bit about how, like, how do you, how do you find people that would be interested in investing? Was it difficult to get investors to kind of buy into this really like what some may, what some people may think is like a quite radical endeavor and sort of walk us through that process? It certainly hasn't been easy. And it is probably taken some years for me in the long run. Uh, it's definitely been, been a, um, very hands-on process, not only in the actual identification of people and funds and, and groups that could theoretically invest in this, but also then stewarding them through the process is, is very hands-on. And, you know, frankly, the first few years that we were attempting to raise money, you know, we, we did struggle because we were viewed as, as so radical, but as things have continued to develop, whether it be state legislation, whether it be the continued unveiling of the exploitation and the level of exploitation that occurs, not only economically, but academically and personally, as all of these layers have continued to get peeled back from the college model, people have continued to realize, wait a minute, maybe those crazy guys are onto something. And really within the last six to 12 months has been, you know, we've started to hit our stride in that fundraising process because people have, you know, been pretty adamant that, that legislation will produce, you know, results that are sufficient to bring down the collegiate model. I don't agree. I think that, um, I think that we're seeing it play out in what will ultimately be either at minimum too centrist, but potentially far too close to what the schools want in the long run. Um, I think the, the focus on NIL alone and not addressing the issues as it relates to employment status, especially right now in the midst of a pandemic. Um, you know, we've, I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit to what we'll talk about in the second half, but you know, again, that all that's happening to these athletes right now is really being exposed. And for us, the other piece of this is from an investment standpoint, Investing in professional sports is very expensive, whereas what we offer, not again, going back to there's the double bottom line, there's the social impact opportunity, the opportunity to, to end exploitation of underrepresented individuals. But then there's also this much lower price point and point of entry into what is, I'm going to just stick to college basketball, you know, right now a four to about a $4 billion market that is still largely untapped when you consider the fact that individual licensing and things like that don't occur at the college sports level. So I think that people are starting to come around to the fact that number one, we've got to rethink everything in the midst of this pandemic. This goes for sports and not for sports. You know, content is being consumed in, in different ways. The, the ability to launch a sports league is as um, cost-effective as it's ever been. 
Um, the opportunities to get your games distributed are more bountiful than they've ever been. And, you know, from a sponsorship perspective, we're at this reflection point societally that everybody's looking at ways to empower underrepresented individuals and groups. And so I think that that's just my guess. That's probably why we've had, we've been busier than we've ever been in terms of engaging with the investment community and again, stewarding them through that process. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting. There were a couple of things um, in what you said. Like, I, I just want to underline how much I agree with you about the the NIL point and the fact that if, th- if that ends up being the end point of any con- conversation around reform in, the, in NCAA sport and college sport, uh, exactly as you say, uh, it's just beyond belief limited. It's limited from the standpoint of compensation itself, right? Obviously, because it's like th- it doesn't actually address at all the fact that these institutions are still exploiting athletes based on the revenue that they're accruing um so you know it's it's a complete figly for that and then additionally as you pointed out as well i I think that at this point exactly as you say the pandemic has exposed it's always been true but the pandemic has exposed in a way that no one can ignore the fact that the health and safety condition piece uh is paramount when it comes to thinking about exploitation in college sport like we can't have students at our universities who are suffering and are going to suffer lifelong injury as a consequence of the harm done to them working for their universities for no compensation, right? I mean, there's like, there's absolutely nothing worse than that. Like there's a lot that's bad as well, um, but there's nothing worse than that. And, and that's exactly what we're looking at in terms of what the, what the NCAA is fighting over right now, right? Like if we end up with NIL, the, the, the NCAA will treat that as like a huge defeat. Right? The way they'll frame it is like, well, we didn't want to do this at all. And we had to make this huge sacrifice. So this is clearly the end of the line when it comes to reform. And that's not sufficient, exactly as you're saying. Um, yeah. But okay, so here's the thing. Though, but I really want to now go to the question that's, that's been on my mind. And I, and I don't know the answer to this. Like I, I've, you know, I'm not an expert on the PCL, but I am fascinated to hear what you're about to say to this question. I want to know about what athletes think what the players think, right? Because from the standpoint of, you know, academics or critics or investors, it all makes sense. What are the athletes saying to you when you approach them about, essentially you're, you're going to be recruiting them to join your league. What are they saying about that? And, and then here's another piece. Cause like, obviously one part of the NCAA question is the lack of union rights. Is there going to be a unionization piece to where the players fit into this puzzle? So I'll start with the second question first, because that's the easier one uh, okay, yeah. to get and the, and the quicker one to get through. So we will definitely allow our athletes to either form a, a union or trade association. They're all going to be employees. They're going to have employee status and receive benefits. Like we've already negotiated a, a group disability program that all of our athletes will be able to take part in. Uh, for our the higher end athletes, they're going to get the opportunity to also receive loss of value policies on the insurance front. Uh, so, you know, from from that standpoint, we've always viewed it as as mission critical that our athletes be considered employees. And therefore, as a result of that, you know, once you have a couple of employees, they have the right to unionize. And then it's never been something that we were going to stand in the way of. We are structured as a single entity. So that does make it a little different versus, you know, um, uh, the NFL or the NBA, which are franchise models. I know the MLS likes to say that they're a single entity. I don't think they function as one anymore, um, but there is at least some case law that suggests they are. So, um, 
you know, that does make it unionizing a little different in our context because a single entity cannot uh, cannot collude with itself. So there is a, a bit of a different analysis as it relates to collective bargaining and negotiating for us than there will be for, again, the NBA, MLB, or NFL. That said, again, we're about empowerment. We're about creating the best employee opportunity and working conditions possible because that now feeds into the first part of your question, which is how do we go about recruiting and what's the, you know, sort of been the, the temperature of the room, so to speak, with these athletes. Um, we've received a lot, you know, overwhelmingly positive feedback from the players that we've spoken with. I mean, they do need to see a few more pieces from us, which we're hoping to roll out here in the next couple months in terms of our coaching staffs, what these brands of the teams are going to look like, um, exactly where we're going to be playing our games, uh, which I think we might have jumped by past earlier, but how has has the uh, how has the pandemic impacted us? We're instead of going to have all of our teams playing in eight different places as originally was planned, we're going to have all of our games in a single place in a closed environment. Uh, we are in negotiations with a couple of different venues as we speak. So once we have that question answered again, it'll be easier for the players and the families to assess the opportunity here and the value for, of that opportunity. Coaching staffs, we have one of our coaching staffs already signed. We're close on our second staff. Uh, we're planning to announce those either by the end of August or, or early September. We have three of our 18 brands done. We're closing in on the fourth um, and we'll be hopefully announcing those four along with the two coaching staffs. So again, as it becomes clearer exactly what the product's going to look and feel like, that's like the last piece of the puzzle that the players need to assess this. But just in general, from what we've presented to them in terms of our salary range, which is going to be fifty to 150000 the fact that our scholarships are lifetime scholarships, they can come back and complete them on you know, a non-continuous basis as long as they don't flunk out. Um, and the fact that there will be totally unrestricted name, image, and likeness rights much akin to what uh, a player experiences in the NBA. Um, all of those things were already landing well with the athletes, but now that we're in the midst of a pandemic and 59 Division I basketball teams started practicing within the last two weeks, and now they're being put at risk despite the fact that their seasons don't start until November, you know, again, it's, it's the, the, the veil is being pulled back and the players are seeing what the real deal is now not only the players but fans investors again all those those different stakeholders that participate in college basketball totally totally um so you know i, I have a, qu a couple questions related to that i certainly our, our friend victoria jackson's gonna love those lifetime scholarships uh it's a great great concept because it absolutely directly addresses this issue of is it possible to to have the educational experience that athletes deserve at the same time as having major athletic obligations. You don't have to struggle with that if they're lifetime scholarships because players can get the education that they deserve at the appropriate time for them. So that's fantastic. Um, and our games are in the season, not to interrupt. Yes, sorry, they're during no. the summer. They're that's during the summer as opposed to during the calendar year. Exactly. No, I love that. That's that's a huge key as well. Uh, it's it's fundamental. It's because we know it's not possible to get a proper education at the same time as having elite athletic obligations. It's just not possible, and it's a lie uh, when the NCA tries to sell it. So that's a genuine solution to that problem. Uh, so now, from the standpoint of recruiting players, uh, and you gave a ton of great information there. A couple things that came to my mind. One, 
I'm not asking you ever to name names. I don't, I don't think that's helpful and it's, it's not fair to anyone, but is this the kind of thing like if someone was following NCAA basketball recruiting and like, just for those who don't know, if, if you are deeply interested in men's college basketball and you're like really invested in quote unquote, your team, your university, it is possible for you to have an intimate familiarity with like four years worth of high school players right now in this moment and like how much your team is involved with those players, right? Like that's that's how absurd the world of recruiting has become and the kind of media complex associated with that world of recruiting. I say this only because for those people then who like are kind of familiar with that world, are there player names out there that are being linked to universities um, in that kind of recruiting landscape who are actually in conversations with you, but like people don't really realize it? That's my first question. And two, has the G League become competition for you in a, in a way that's challenging in that the G League has suddenly started offering comp, um, contracts, like um, salaries, compensation, not identically akin to what you're doing, but definitely in the same ballpark? Yeah, I mean, uh, again, I'm going to flip the order of my answers here, starting with the G League. Uh, the, you know, we spoke and we met with the NBA League office. We gave them our thoughts and feedback on their model a couple of years ago now, or 18 months ago, maybe now. Um, They did change their model, and it does look a heck of a lot like ours, granted with a higher pay scale. Um, Again, not saying that they took our ideas or anything like that, but they probably realized the shortcomings of their previous offer, because people think that that G League opportunity just popped up out of nowhere. Like they've They've been pitching that to players now for about two years, and and it just nobody had signed until they increased the salary component. Now, and and they had to create this separate team. Like this, the, that's again a misconception that people aren't picking up on. They think that these players that have signed are actually participating in the G League. That is not the case. This academy adjacent G League team is going to be separately playing exhibition games, not participating in the G League. So again, they had to tweak their model to convince players that it was the right way to go. And so um, as far as we are aware, as of right now, they're only going to make that opportunity available to five or six players per year, even if they were to increase. And the the largest expansion idea that I've heard, which would take years to get to, would be to get up to four teams. You know, you're still only then talking about 20 to 25 players a year. To put that into context, you know, there are 4,000, there are over 4,200 Division one scholarship basketball players in the country right now. There's over 700 that entered the transfer portal in the last 12 months. And so the opportunity that the G League adjacent academy is going to be offering is so discreet that it doesn't really impact college basketball, maybe at the highest level. But that what we're looking to do is build an opportunity for a wide range of players. Again, 96 to start our hope is that by when all things are said and done, the league will reach 24 teams. So we'd be looking at, you know, just south of 300 players. So we we think that there are far more athletes out there that have value, maybe not half a million dollars in value like they gave Jalen Green, but the 50 to 150,000 range. And so now circling back to your first question, which was, you know, who specifically are we going after? The that next group of players where, you know, starting with the guys that would be now looking at Duke, UNC, Kentucky, those sorts of schools um, that do not get the G League opportunity. You know, that's where we think that we're going to be able to to make some noise. 
That's where we think we'll be able to convince some of those players. Not this, and I'm not saying we're going to clean house and that you know the, our 96 players are going to be the next 96 on the list. Um, you know, our hope is that we can land somewhere between five to ten of the top hundred to 125 players, which are the four to five star prospects. And then we're also going to be targeting players that are currently in the collegiate system. A lot of people don't realize that. Like we're we're looking to recruit some players away from these schools that are already on these campuses. So, um, and they won't have to sit out a year if like they would have to, if they go through the transfer portal. So, um, you know, we, we think that those two groups of players combined with athletes that because of SAT requirements and things like that are rendered academically ineligible for college basketball that end up having to go the JUCO route that are very talented. We think that's another group of players that we'll be able to pull from. And then lastly, international prospects that have been paid since they were you know, 12 or 14 and are ineligible to play in college basketball, we think that we can be a good landing spot for them as well. So I would say of the 96, you know, that's going to, those four groupings, that's where those 96 players are going to come from. Well, thank you for this. This is like actually answers a bunch of questions that I think were lingering for all three of us and for probably a lot of our listeners as well about the PCL. And I think you've given us like uh, more information about the PCL than, than I think most people um, have, have been able to sort of seek out. So it's been really awesome talking to you about this. One of the last questions that we have about the PCL before we move to talking about this, this amazing moment of sort of resistance that we're seeing is to get back to like, we've talked about it very briefly, the whole sort of COVID-19 world. We're interested in, in learning about to what extent has the pandemic affected your plans for the league and, and just plans for the league in general? Sort of what new challenges have emerged for the PCL in a post-COVID-19 world? Um, and like, I can't imagine that you are really talking about sort of health protocols, sort of vis-a-vis a, a infectious disease and global pandemic when you first kind of thought of the PCL. And, and now that you're going through this um, transition and trying to create the league while we're dealing with this, um, this pandemic, I'm really curious to get your thoughts on, on how um, the, the COVID-19 world has affected the PCL. Yeah, I mean, as I mentioned, the first, the biggest one has been, you know, where we're going to play our games. Where we're, we've decided, and we decided this actually back in April. We just haven't really talked about it publicly that we we were going to shift to a single venue model um, for for this first season because we felt even back then that this thing was going to get way worse than people were were thinking originally, and we were concerned in the ability to travel players around, not only to travel players around, but also, you know, when you're pitching investors on reasons to give you money, the last thing you want is for part of that business plan to rely on third parties, such as airplanes and buses and things like that, that all of a sudden may not be available to to your your league and to your athletes. So we wanted to look at how can we minimize the risks, the external risks related to the pandemic to successfully pulling off the first season of the league. That was number one. Number two, uh, you're exactly correct. Maybe at some point in the course of the last three years, I might have at one point have just very quickly thought, eh, we probably need to have an infectious disease policy, you know, just in case sort of thing. Definitely never thought like we actually need to sit down and specifically plan out every single detail to ensure the 
the safety of our athletes from from this sort of a infectious global disease now. And so we are definitely looking at, I don't like to call them bubbles because I think that's a misnomer. I like to call them closed environments. We are looking at closed environments to successfully pull off this first season, which naturally when you're dealing with 18 to 23 year olds presents some challenges that maybe don't exist in the NBA bubble. Um, or, and also there's the, the separate challenges there as it relates to the lack of experience and sometimes accountability and responsibility, you know, like LeBron James getting the Lakers together sort of thing. Like you probably trusted him to handle that in a safe way, even though he may not be familiar working with a pandemic, you know, you, you felt like he'd be able to pull that off. I don't know how many 18 year olds in the country would have the ability to really, you know, take on a leadership, successful leadership role and lead their team without any sort of guidance. So it's really putting, I don't want to say pressure, but it's putting, um, we're spending a considerable amount of time looking at exactly what policies and procedures we're going to have in place to ensure the safety of our athletes, not only while they're playing, which, you know, was our primary concern was, okay, practices, games, travel, like we need to make sure all these things are accounted for. Now we have to really look at their living situation. We have to really look at how they're going to and from the venue to wherever that living situation is. We're having to look at exactly what are you doing in your personal time now so that you're not putting the other members of your team at risk, your coaching staff at risk, and then potentially risking the whole league and the whole league launch. So, you know, from that standpoint, again, we've identified a couple of venues. We're negotiating with them. We think we have, there's one in particular that we focused on that we think has all of the the things we need to make it suitable for this sort of an environment. Um, But, you know, frankly, it's going to take an atmosphere of accountability and responsibility, not only amongst the league staff and the coaching staffs, but amongst our players as well. Excellent. Thank you. Um, so we're going to transition um, a little bit away from the PCL now, but we're still going to be talking about something that is really intimately connected to a lot of the reasons why you all created the league, right? So like giving athletes agency, making sure that they are paid fairly, um, sort of taking care of that their health is, is, is taking care of those sorts of things. Um, and so we'd really like to talk to you about this current moment in college sport that, that we've talked about a little bit. And we wrote in a piece for The Guardian that came out um, just this week about experiences that athletes shared with us from, um, in terms of what they talked about from important waivers to a fundamental lack of trust in coaching staffs to outright concerns about pandemic protocols. Can you walk us a bit through what you have heard about the conditions athletes have been experiencing on campuses across the country? And um, I know we would love, and I'm sure listeners would also love to hear as much detail as you are able to provide. Yeah, absolutely. It's been an exhausting couple of weeks. That's for that's for sure. Uh, you know, we were tipped to the Pac-12 boycott uh, about a month ago. We knew that it was coming, and so we were obviously, from a league standpoint, pr- trying to understand as much as we could. You know what the the impact would have. Obviously, this is primarily focused on football. But nevertheless, it's still, to your point, within that realm of athlete empowerment and changing the collegiate model system for the better. So we were in communication with some of the athletes on a couple of those campuses, trying to just, you know, 
understand exactly what they were going through, understanding why they felt like this was the moment to do it, understanding, you know, exactly what they were were experiencing because you know, the physical health concerns are are obvious given given the virus, but then the mental health component was another big concern for us because then we started learning about for instance, Stanford. Stanford's unique. They do not have athletic specific dorms on their campus. And so we were made aware that the Stanford football team was being kept in the the Sheridan Hotel uh, in Palo Alto. And and that raised some red flags for us because then we're like, well, wait a minute. Why aren't they on campus? Why do you have this, this college football team back, but you don't have them on the college campus? And we quickly learned that apparently the the university had felt the the dorms were not safe enough for the athletes to, to have them in, which then raises the concern of, well, if it's not safe enough on campus, how is it safe enough for them to be back, period? And, you know, the so but Stanford, you know, to their credit, Stanford has put things in place to. I think my understanding is, you know, the the area of the hotel the players are staying in is just for the players. Like they managed to like buy out some of the floors so that other people aren't interacting with them, which is good. I mean, I guess under the circumstances, they're doing as good as they could be. But, you know, it all comes back to is their best good enough? And I think the answer to that question is no, because what about the coaches? You've now got the, the players cordoned off. The coaches are still interacting with them, you know, when it comes to, to especially strength and conditioning coaches are interacting with them on a daily basis. Well, we could not get clarification on, well, is, are those coaches tested every day or does it just require a single negative test? And then they basically get to go on with their lives. They get to go home, they get to go to the grocery store, they get to go here, go there. And then they come back to, you know, to the gym the next day. And now they don't have to take another test. and well, you, clearly we are poking, if we're going back to the, the bubble idea, like we're poking holes in this bubble very quickly that put the players at risk. And, you know, how often are the players being tested? You know, again, is it a situation where, is it once a week? Is it twice a week? Is it, are you only getting tested if you show symptoms? You know, and, and again, to, credit, to Stanford's credit, our understanding is they were testing far more regularly than on their campuses, but then that raises the concerns of, okay, well, not everybody has the resources of Stanford in the Pac-12. And our understanding is on some of those campuses, and, and this has all started to trickle out in the last week, that there is this great deal of distrust between the coaching staffs and the athletic departments and the, and the athletes, because some schools, our understanding, were just totally misrepresenting how much testing they were doing, if they were doing testing at all. Um, and sort of the policies and procedures that they put in place were just being ignored, that coaches were pressuring players to suggest, hey, if you're not like really feeling it, don't say anything because like we need you. And, you know, if you miss a week of, of practice being quarantined, you might lose your spot sort of thing. So very quickly, you see the sort of implicit pressures that can be applied uh, to the athletes, you know, people some of the questions I got were like, are they telling them they're going to kick them off the team if, if you know, anything like that? And I'm, that's not my concern because that's something that will get worked out publicly if that happens. My concern is what's in the implicit things that are being <laughs> put into what the coaching staffs are telling these athletes. Because now if you're being told to, to don't, not say anything unless the symptoms are severe, 
Well, now you could very easily have, you know, a, a, an outbreak on one of these campuses because you have an athlete that isn't super symptomatic or asymptomatic, but has it. And then they pass it to all of the, their teammates. So that's a problem. Um, the, the other problems that we were hearing about were the lack of transparency around positive tests, which I get. You've got a HIPAA issue that you've got to worry about. You've got privacy issues that you've got to worry about and getting permissions from an individual to actually, you know, state whether it's to the team or, or in any sort of public manner that a particular individual has tested positive. I get all of that. But still, at the same time, when you have roommates of players who are testing positive and then the roommate doesn't know and isn't told, again, now we have a huge, huge problem. And you're putting additional athletes at risk to what comes down to the ability to keep getting your paycheck, being the coaching staff and, and the athletic department. Yeah, no, I really appreciate you sharing that. And, and I'm just going to kind of follow for before getting to the next question, I want to share a little bit about some of our findings for our listeners who maybe haven't seen our story in The Guardian. Um, so, uh, you know, one thing you mentioned was how, how frequent is the testing, right? Which is a critical question. And we know with these professional teams that any kind of bubble-esque model, uh, even the Major League Baseball's absolutely doomed from the start non-bubble model, um, <laughs> you know, they, they all involve a heck of a lot of testing. Right. I mean, like testing is absolutely essential. And the ethical issue there is actually that why are those players getting tested? Other people in public in the public aren't getting. And it's a great question because it's a non-essential sport. So there's absolutely no reason why people who are in greater danger and in more essential occupations are being deprioritized in terms of their access to tests than people doing work that is not essential for a society. Right. So I'm not, I'm not blaming the athletes. I'm just saying that's a fundamental problem with the professional sport. Um reactivation piece. But that's not the problem in the college sport context. The problem in the college sport context is they're not actually testing these athletes. Right. Uh, and I'm saying that based on talking to sources at institutions. And by the way, you made a great point. Like there's a huge disparity, as you well know, um, between the, the exceptionally well-resourced institutions versus the much, much, much less well-resourced institutions. But I, I got to tell you, I'm even talking about well-resourced institutions. Yeah. Players told us they didn't get tested for two months. Like they got tested when they came on campus and they weren't tested again for two months after that. Um, so this is a completely different magnitude of problem in college sport than it is in the pros. Because we basically, are, what we're talking about is absolutely unregulated and dangerous <laughs> pandemic conditions that these unpaid athletes are operating under it's completely unsafe and it's also you know who else it's unsafe for it's unsafe for the custodial staff right like at the university of north carolina who by the way tried to conceal their positive test results kind of referring back to what you were saying they, they concealed the concealed and then it was like oh well actually we have over 30 positive tests uh mostly with the football team although they wouldn't admit that um they wouldn't tell us outright that it was the football team, who, how many of them were on the football team. But we know because custodial workers who had the responsibility of cleaning, for instance, the living uh, quarters of the football team, right, contracted the virus. Multiple. Um, and so, like, these are people who, by the way, because, again, the argument that we see in pop, not your argument, but the argument in popular culture we see all the time is, like, these are young athletes. They're going to be healthy, right? No big deal, says Mike Gundy, et cetera. Uh, but you know what? These other workers on campus are actually in demographics that are in great danger, 
from the virus, um, regardless of what we think about the younger athletes. So there are a lot of people being put at risk for this absolutely catastrophic enterprise, which just continues apace. Other issues we heard about, eligibility, right? Like there's this you know, fake promise that, you know, no problem, you'll remain in good standing. You know, we, we heard this from um, the College Athlete Unity athletes that we talked to in a show last week, which I encourage people to to check out, you know, like, sure, there's this discourse around being in good standing, which is to say that your scholarship will be guaranteed. And that's like a kind of MC of division, at least a power five wide policy. But I mean, as as people we've been hearing from have been telling us, that's not in practice how this plays out, right? Like your coach, you're not actually in good standing with your coaches. If your coaches think like, oh yeah, you're going to opt out. Well, that means you're not going to play. You can be on the team next year, but you're not going to play it next year, right? So that's one coercive dimension to this. But then the even more extreme dimension is that for players who have already exhausted their red shirt, there has been no promise that they're going to receive an additional medical red shirt. Now, this has, got, this has come into the news more in the last week, that you, as you mentioned, Ricky, um, we've got more and more stories about this. And I'm glad to see it because the athletes I talked to were terrified about this issue. They were not comfortable opting out because they felt that they may not if they were in there, if they were like upperclassmen who have already, have already used up eligibility, redshirt wise. They were worried they don't have another chance. And these are athletes, right, who have invested all these years, many of them, because they want to play in the pros. And it's not like basketball in the sense that, like, we already know that almost no one is playing in the pros, right? So it's like you, you can make the case, like, these athletes, they're just like, they're totally living a pipe dream here. There's no way this is going to play out for them. No. In this case, in football, the rosters are so immense that most people playing Power 5 football and actually playing on the field have a shot at making the NFL and certainly like the CFL and other professional leagues, right? And if they've been grinding it out for all this time, right, there's a reason why they have sacrificed their bodies throughout high school, throughout Pop Warner football. This is their chance. They've given everything for it. And if they're not being promised an additional year, they don't feel comfortable sitting out for the virus, right? And that's another thing that, again, it would be so easy for the NCAA just to step in and handle that issue and just say, you know what? We're granting you that additional year. So anyway, you know, these are, these are all, these are all, I mean, I think I'm probably forgetting about other things, but there are so many ways in which athletes have been suffering harm this summer that we have to remain attentive to because I don't, the news may break tomorrow that the season's canceled. Um, that doesn't mean that all the problems are solved. So let, let me get to the question finally, after all this time, um, the most incredible part of this story as it's evolved is the resistance we've seen from athletes, right? I mean, that's, that's what's been un, almost unprecedented in terms of the scope. Can you share with us what you know about some of the, just more, you already started talking about this, but about the organizing that has taken place in the PAC 12 and perhaps in other places across the country. Um, how has that organizing been facilitated? What are some of the demands? And do you have a sense of what players concerns have been about organizing in the first place? Yeah, I think we've got to break the two up because the the Pac-12 demands that they made versus what the Big Ten demands were earlier this week uh, have quite a few divergences. Uh, the critical overlap is that everybody wants a safer environment with established protocols across the board, which should not be a, a thing that they even have to ask for, frankly. But... Nevertheless, that's that's where we're at, that, that they have to make that demand uh, or they're not going to get it. So, you know, there are those around contact tracing. There are those around, you know, established protocols of testing. 
and you know the things along those lines that again should have been in place the moment they got on campus but weren't so but once you get past that um the the biggest again divergence between the two is that the pac-12 has included demands as it relates to revenue sharing they've included demands around voluntary pay cuts of Larry Scott, the commissioner of the Pac-12, the athletic directors at these campuses, and the coaching staffs. Um, and and I should also mention their revenue sharing component was not just for the football team. It was for every team on campus. So obviously, the, the Big Ten, though, did not make such demands at this time. And our understanding is that the difference between the two groups is that the Big Ten has remained the pretty resolute and very focused, whereas the Pac-12 group um, has not been as much. Um, again, our understanding is also the Big Ten group has maybe three times as many athletes involved. Um, and and they're really just, they're all football players. They're honed in on Big Ten football, whereas the Pac-12 fo- group, while it is primarily football players that are consisting of the group, they made demands as it related to not football-related things, which will ultimately, I think, muddy the issues and frankly, potentially turn the court of public opinion against them a bit. And that's already started to happen. You know, you have the DeCourcy's of the world and the Doug Gottlieb's of the world who are very easily able to take pot shots at the Pac-12 players. uh, Once you start getting into revenue, once you start getting into pay cuts of administrators. So it's going to be interesting to see how it all plays out. I mean, in terms of the athletes that we've heard from, obviously now there's still the developing story at Washington State where anecdotally we've been told, you know, five players were kicked off the team primarily for being a part of this boycott. Um, obviously, we I'm not a reporter, so I'm not boots on the ground able to confirm everything. We've been in communication with a couple of those players. Um, it sounds pretty pretty drastic what's happening in terms of retaliation towards them. And it sounds like the athletic director is going to stand behind coach Rolovic. Uh, so I think we could see more of that. I think it, it's going to take a really special kind of black hearted person to, to take that approach. But um, especially with such public scrutiny now around this, but that said, that doesn't mean that the PAC 12 is going to give in to the demands. I still think the most likely end result regardless of the boycotts is that college football gets postponed till the spring at best um, just from a a purely uh, logistical and health and safety standpoint. But, you know, and and if that happens, are the players going to remain lockstep in their demands and remain resolute to those demands and to the group between now and, you know, next February or March, whenever that season might start? I don't know. My bet would be probably not. They'll, they'll lose some members. Um, and it'll take the sting out of it a bit. Um, but that's entirely based on the Pac-12 and potentially the Big Ten postponing, which obviously we don't know if that's going to happen or not. If everything moves forward as is, I think what we're about to have, though, is that moment where finally everybody realizes that these schools are equally as evil as the NCAA. And I think that they often get a pass because people like to look and point fingers at the NCAA and don't yes. think about the fact that the schools are the member institutions that make up the association that is the NCAA. 
Yes, 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 yes. A thousand times yes. I think that's a wonderful point. And you actually, you did start to address the kind of follow-up question I have, but I just want, I want to kind of delve a little bit more just because I think it's something that no one is talking about other than you. Like you brought it up yourself really here. And, and I think you're, it's like there's a lot of insight to it. And, and you are not a union organizer or a labor organizer. So it's not like I'm not trying to quiz you on the ins and outs of labor organizing, but I wanted to follow up because... If you listen to someone like Jane McAlevey, um, one of the person I would consider to be essentially like the expert on labor organizing in this country at this point, what she will tell anyone uh, is that labor organizing is incredibly difficult. It's time yes. consuming. Um, it's just hard to do. And it requires years, not, not because like you just have to talk to so many people over so many years, but like actually you have to test your solidarity. This is the scary thing. She talks about structure tests and the fact that you have to, you have to do moments in your campaigns where you test how able you are to rally your labor force, right? Like the, the people in whatever, whatever the constituency is, in this case, it would be like these players, right? Like you have all these college football players who are saying, especially the pack is a good example. I love the distinction you made between the pack and the big 10, because I think you're exactly right about those differences. But I want to focus on the pack because the, frankly, they're making the demands that I think are, are most impressive, right? Like they're the, the demands that I would love to see most and the demands that's, that really um, look most like the kind of demands that an actual labor union might make, right? Or like a, an organ, they're, they're, they're essentially threatening a strike. Um, and, and that's, by the way, that's what Kane, Kane Coulter said that on Twitter. Kane Coulter, who was uh, participated in, in the Northwestern uh, attempt to unionize, right? <laughs> he, he, that's what he called it. He said, like, this, is a, this is a strike. They're trying, they're, they're threatening a strike and they're threatening a thri- strike in order to make huge gains. But what McAlevey might say is like, you know, when she, when she was looking at things like the LA teachers, right? And Chicago teachers and how they were so successful in recent years, it didn't happen overnight. It took them years and years of organizing and testing their power. And I'm so afraid for these athletes right now, you're pointing it out, the punitive steps being taken at Washington State, right? And other institutions that we're not hearing about, because I, I, I can tell everyone right now, things I've heard behind the scenes. Um, there's huge backlash on these campuses. I'm hearing that as well. Uh, if that's a, most of it is not publicized. That's not leaking out in the media right now. But like there are, there's backlash happening all around the country. It's really scary to be a college football player right now uh, and to be resisting in any way, shape, or form. So that that all the more underlines how incredibly brave what those Pac-12 players are doing is. But it also means like they have had no opportunity to structure test their capacity to follow through on this resistance. And I'm a little scared that um, this all taking place so quickly, there could be some ugly consequences. I share those concerns. I want to echo what you were talking about in terms of punitive action. There is a particular example I've heard of where, you know, there's uh, an individual player who's no longer receiving his meal service, nor is he permitted to go to the athletic facility to get his meals. Um, You know, so like there's that situation that's out there that to your point, the media is catching up and they're doing their diligence. And I get it, you know, from a legal perspective, they got to make sure that they're right before they put those sorts of things out there. Uh, So I understand the need for diligence, but going back to, to, testing, you know, the, these union efforts, I think you're exactly correct. Cause one of the biggest issues about the teacher unions, let's just take those as the example versus a college athlete union, a college athlete union is going to have even more turnover than the NFL union. You know, the primary members of your groups 
are going to be out of there if they're a basketball player in less than a year, if they're a football player, you know, between two to three years, or I guess three years based on the the current uh, CBA and the the draft requirement there. And if you try, if you try to do a union, and this is again, where I think that going back to the strategy of it, I think the PAC 12 might've made a misstep is making demands on behalf of other sports. Because if you try to just do an all encompassing union of all college, like if, if all of the Stanford athletes formed a single Stanford union, there's going to be such a disparity in the needs and wants of those athletes. You know, you're going to have superstar football players that are generating the primary revenue. You're going to have basketball players that are generating huge amounts of revenue and are only there for a year. But then you're going to have the rank and file people from all the non-revenue sports and from just those other revenue generating teams that are going to have drastically different outlooks because they will be on campus for four or five years. Whereas those football players and basketball players, statistically speaking, will not complete their degree. So that's where I think that there's, there's, I have always felt that a college athletes union would be the weakest of any sports union that's out there, including the NFLPA, which is a very weak union. But I think that, that there's a lot of susceptibility there to being steamrolled by the NCAA and the NCAA or conferences, however, we're group negotiating these, these deals. I think there's the potential for them to really steamroll whatever representative body is in place on behalf of the union. And going back to the demands that are being made, some of the research we've been doing, as you pointed out, like I'm not a a union organizer or an expert on those things, but I'd like to consider myself a a strategist in, in what I do. And especially as it relates to understanding the broader landscape of college athletics. My understanding is that the, the demand that they made as it relates to revenue sharing, which to lay it out for, for the audience, we would divide each individual sport, figure out what their gross revenue is, and then divide it by 50%. And that 50% would then be split evenly amongst the members of that particular team. So number one, there's a there's an accounting issue there because with the exception of the ACC, I don't think that any of the other Power 5 schools actually break their revenues down by sport, nor would it be all that possible to figure it out. Because like when Nike signs a deal with Ohio State, yes, the bulk of that deal is because of Ohio State's football team and men's basketball team. But we don't really know what the value of the other sports are to that Nike deal. So like, how do you prorate that over all of the sports on campus that are all wearing Nike gear? So there's there's that accounting issue. But then the bigger issue would be Title IX, where Title IX is often a red herring defense in most cases. But in this case, I think it is actually a legal impossibility to remain in compliance with Title IX and meet the demand that the athletes have made here. Because the money that would be split, again, because it's broken down by sport, the money that would be split amongst the football team versus what would be split amongst the softball team, there's no way for that to match up. Now, I know that there are Title IX experts out there that I'm sure would argue that because you took 50% of gross revenue of each individual sport, that that meets the proportionality requirement. But the Title IX experts that I've spoken with have said it's more about the actual dollars themselves and that there is no way for this to be compliant with Title IX, which is not a great thing. It's going to result in in even less investment in women's sports and college athletics, which I think is an issue. Number two, 
um, again, muddying the issues in their, their list of demands, I go back to the, the voluntary pay cuts of coaches. I don't understand why this was included in there, frankly, you know, because if let's say, let's ignore what I just said about the revenue sharing, let's say tomorrow Stanford agrees, we're going to start splitting 50% of all of our revenues with those teams and they can somehow work it out with title nine. If Stanford still decides that even with 50% of the pie, they're going to pay David Shaw $55 million a year to be their basketball coach. That's their, sorry, their football coach. That's their decision. The, the athletes, in my opinion, shouldn't have a say in that much as, you know, the, 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 that's, that's, sorry, that's just strictly a business decision, I think, at that point on behalf of the schools. So I, I feel like that was one that was thrown in there that shouldn't have been for strategy purposes, because again, it distracts from the very valid and reasonable demands that they made. And then it also opens the door to people like Gottlieb and DeCourcy and Larry Scott in the Pac-12 to distract people from the things we do need to be talking about because of this particular demand. I, I Thank you for laying that out there um, so clearly. And one of the things, one of the other distraction sort of mechanisms that I've seen on social media almost everywhere is is like so many people and and i would argue that these people are merely propagating sort of protectionist ideas because they want to like cheer for old state U on saturdays they continue to promote this narrative that athletes want to play because they love the game and then any critics of the ncaa and member institutions are simply outsiders who don't understand the reality of what college athletes actually want. I would love to get your thoughts on this narrative that seems to per- persist everywhere on social media. We we have, have uh, on the show, we've been even, um, we've been retweeted by people that are just like, you don't listen to collegiate athletes. You're not listening to them. They want to play. I'd love to get your thoughts on that narrative. So I'm going to quote a, a friend of mine, Howard Bryant. It's all bullshit. I mean, that's really what it is. That, that, that is 100% what it is. And I would argue that most of the people that push that narrative probably didn't play sports. Um, they, and, it, and it's funny to also, you know, like Bomani Jones is another, uh, another guy that I interact with quite a bit on this stuff. And, you know, he, he made a really good point, I think, earlier this week, that people like that, they act like it's their money. That's being taken away. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's just, it's so funny how defensive they get. And, you know, more seriously, uh, tying it back to the PCL, you know, one of our very first investors was a gentleman by the name of Mecca Okereke, who runs mm-hmm. the e commerce team at Google and has been, you know, done all these really great things within tech. And he always used to tell me, that people like that, we shouldn't pay them any mind because frankly, their opinion doesn't matter. Like we don't care that you don't think college athletes shouldn't be paid because frankly, you're not involved in the discussion, the real discussion. You're not the ones that are in, you know, on, on the battlefield, so to speak, trying to make these changes and make these things happen. So, you know what, you can take your pot shots on Twitter. You can say that, you know, athletes play for the love of the game. You can continue to parrot these false narratives, but 
it frankly i don't lose any sleep over it and i'm not all that worried about people saying it because tying it back to the pcl like we're gonna do what we're gonna do and you know what if if that means you're not gonna watch our games then oh well uh (laughs) there are gonna be plenty of people that that want to watch the best collegiate basketball product in the country whether the athletes on the court are getting paid or not Mm -hmm. and same thing goes for traditional college sports like if athlete if pay starts to get introduced you know you could argue that this the march the last march madness that was actually hosted when you know the adidas quote-unquote scandal broke and all that you know and all of a sudden you have it was close to 50 percent of the field of 68 were in one way shape or form mentioned in the various reports that come out you would think that if people really only watch these sports because the athletes on the court or field are playing for the love of the game, that that would have been the least watched March Madness tournament ever. Because it was pretty clear at that point that a lot of players playing in those games had gotten paid under the table. And it was the most watched March Madness in history. That was such a fantastic answer. And, you know, I, I this is this, the, that criticism has just been kind of driving us crazy here because, yeah, the, the people who say this, you know, they're like, oh, listen to the athletes, as we said before. And like the athletes want to play and this is part of their identity and their identity is sort of not being challenged, but is a little bit in flux because of COVID. And therefore, we need to get them on the court or the field or whatever as fast as they can so they can have that identity again. But what you're pointing to and what the league is trying to do is say, like, yes, it's about their identity, but it's also about them being treated fairly and equitably and ensuring that they have, you know, a lifetime access to college education if it takes them a lifetime and health insurance and, you know, like helping them build their brand. Right. It's not about their identity and like a desire to play right now. It's about we're thinking about like their whole like lifetime and and their families and how that's going to impact their families too. And so I just, I really appreciate everything that that you all are doing. And I think it's really like highlighted in this moment and especially in your answer. So I really appreciate that. Yeah. And if I can just add, I think what this has proven to me at least, well, actually I already believed it. So maybe it's not me that matters, but hopefully to others, what it's proven is that amateurism cannot exist in a pandemic. The athletes (laughs) have to have the opportunity to be involved. The reason why the NBA bubble, the NWSL, the WNBA, the MLS, the reason why these have been successfully pulled off is because the athletes were intimately involved in establishing the protocols and they created a, an atmosphere of responsibility and accountability. And you cannot replicate that unless the athletes are employees. And so I just don't see a possible way that unless you're essentially saying, you know, it's time to get them back in the fields sort of thing like and just taking this indentured servant servitude approach like there's no way that this is going to be pulled off with anything other than disastrous results absolutely and so we i want to ask something that you've touched on a little bit here and that's on the sort of topic of gender now do you see the pcl expanding in the future to include the high school wmba pipeline And what do you envision the PCL doing for female basketball players, especially when their ability to earn income really relates to the comparatively low attention to them that sports media outlets give them compared to what they do to male players? Yeah, I think first and foremost, I've been so excited over the last six weeks with the NWSL outrating the MLS. That's just been fantastic. Number one, first and foremost. and I have friends at the MLS, so I don't, I'm not saying that to be critical of the MLS. I'm saying that as a celebration 
of people finally recognizing how good the players in the NWSL are and how good of a product that league has. Um, now we're seeing it in the WNBA too, where where they're I know they're in the early stages of their restart, but but they are now you know rating better than they've ever rated before. So number one, I think that the tide is starting to shift in terms of uh, consumer attention to these products. Now, obviously, the media attention that goes around that and the overall investment in the sports is something that still needs to be drastically addressed. And getting to the PCL, we de- women's basketball is definitely a sport that we've identified. I do want to be clear. I don't think our model works for every sport because I don't think every college sport justifies compensation for those athletes. That said, women's basketball, women's soccer is something I'm super excited about, of hopefully getting to, to tackle at some point. Uh, and and have as a part of our you know sort of the umbrella of the leagues that we hope to eventually have, and what we've set out and said that our goal is to do, regardless of which sport we're we're going to do, is to have an equal pay structure where our women basketball players and our men basketball players are on an equal pay scale, equal medians. Uh, part of why we're not trying to simultaneously launch both at the same time is so that even if the league has to subsidize a part of that. Um, because maybe the investment isn't there right at, off the bat. We want to ensure that that's the case, uh, first and foremost. But um, I think the opportunity is huge there because like WNBA, the, the restrictions around athlete, uh, women athletes' ability to enter the WNBA draft and enter the NWSL are far more restrictive. They have to you know, go several more years than is the case in their male counter sports, counterpart sports. So, you know, the, the, uh, the exploitation that occurs for them is longer. So the pitch to them should be much easier, theoretically, that instead of spending these four unpaid years at UConn, yes, you're going to win every game while you're there, but instead you could come over here, get paid 50 to $150,000 for these four years, and then go into the WNBA. So I think the, the, pitch there is far easier because you don't have the black market economy that exists within men's basketball. Um, and again, they're far more restricted in terms of their ability to leave campus and, and reach the professional ranks. Absolutely. Well, listen, we've, we've been doing a lot of this work already, um, but I would love to ask you maybe just for a moment, if you had to prognosticate what is the near future for big time college sports in the US? You know, we've, we've been looking at the fall, we've been talking a little bit about the spring. If we're thinking through the next couple of years, next few years, what does this landscape look like? I'm not overly optimistic about the, the traditional model. Uh, that, I'm biased, but that's why I've been working on the PCL. I think that I think the legislation route is going to bear less fruit than people think. I think that um, I've, you know, I've gotten a look at some of the stuff that that is supposedly going to be proposed um, that uh, that has bipartisan support, and it's very centrist, and that's being nice. Um, I think that by the time it goes through committee and the floor, it's going to get whittled down to look far more like the the P five or the NCA proposal than it's going to look like anything that's pro athlete. I think on the boycott front, I. I think that there will be concessions as it relates to health and safety, but I don't see that resulting in anything as it relates to revenue because the other thing we haven't really jumped into, the 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 other shoe to drop if the Pac-12 were to give in, is there is then 
a slam dunk antitrust case for the previous four recruiting classes, the previous four years of athletes to then sue for the difference between whatever that that revenue share looks like and the, the restricted cost of attendance level that they were held to, which I think conservatively could be, yeah, if you look at it across the power five, could be in the billions in damages. And I think would definitely be a plaintiff's win. That's why in all of these legislative proposals from the P5 and the NCA, they're saying we need um, insulation from additional antitrust scrutiny and why we need um, that that protection in place from a legislative standpoint. So that that's a reason why like the, the PAC-12 almost can't give in to the revenue demands. Plus, there's the whole Title IX stuff that we went through already. Um, so I don't necessarily seeing that resulting in anything, any sort of seismic shifts from a revenue standpoint. Um, and frankly, these schools, you know, I know the, the Power Five breaking away is another rumor that's out there, but you just take the time to read the Power Five's legislative proposal. The Power Five become coming to power and sort of just breaking away from the NCA. It's going to be meet the old, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. So I'm, I'm not overly optimistic on that front where I am very optimistic is that I think that we are going to be able to successfully launch starting with men's basketball. And then we're going to be able to chip away at other sports over time and eventually work to a place where I don't think we actually take down the NCAA. I think that that's again, a misconception of the long run impact of the PCL, but I think that we substantially change their business model forever. And we at least provide uh, an, a equitable opportunity for college athletes. So thank you so much for laying that out for us. And, you know, we've really talked about a lot here, but since we don't know everything about the PCL, I wanted to ask you, is there anything that you would like listeners to know about you and the work that you all are doing that we have not already asked you about? I mean, really, again, all of us, David and I were both college athletes. Granted, I'm not going to claim that I was ever as good as he was in any particular sport, Um, but we've built this strictly with the athletes in mind. And I think that that's ultimately where true change lies for college sports is that, again, once we build a model that's equitable and takes care of the athletes, the revenues are going to follow because once you have that high level of a product, you know, it's going to have stability and it's going to have long run success. And I mean, really, again, that's that's what we set out to do was build the best model possible for college athletes. And if people want to check out more information, you can go to thepcleague.com. And you can also check out, as you guys mentioned in the opening, David and I on our uh, on our podcast, Forward Thinking, which is on all podcast platforms now and YouTube. So you can get a little bit more of a taste of who we are and our personalities. Well, Ricky, thank you so much um, for laying this all out. I can say, maybe I'm speaking for Johanna and Nathan when I can say the PCL League and the work you're doing, friends of the show, absolutely. Um, and to you, David, Wendell, Keith, Andy, and the rest of the team, just keep doing what you're doing. And we'll be sure to link all of the socials and the the PC League um, website in the show notes. Um, And feel free to reach out to us on Twitter whenever you want if you you need something um, amplified. Um, But just overall, thank you so much for coming on the show and spending um, this hour and a half walking us through what's happening, not only in the PCL League, but what you're seeing on the grounds with the resistance and the, the, the labor movement. So thank you for coming on. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And uh, same thing. We love the work y'all are doing. 
appreciate you uh, having me on and any way that we can support in the overall empowerment and creating an equitable model for athletes. We're in, we're there. Thank you for tuning into another episode of the End of Sport podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to like, share, and subscribe. Give us a follow on Twitter or Instagram at End of Sport Pod, or shoot us an email at theendofsport at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.